G'day mate. G'day mate, 40 here. So I've been listening to a New Yorker essay, Justice Samuel Alito's Crusade Against a Secular America by Margaret Talbot. And uh, one of her critiques of Justice Alito is that he quoted from James Taylor's song, Fire and Rain, without understanding that the meaning of the song was about James Taylor's fight with addiction. So she's an originalist. She believes that musical lyrics can only be understood in alignment with the original intention of the writer. They, they can't have any further or additional meanings. So in, in that area, she's quite conservative. Right? She's quite the textual originalist. But uh, when it comes to the Constitution, like she's all for the you know the most the, the most you know liberal change with the times uh, meanings you know, possible. So if I keep my, my hat on here. Okay. So let's listen to some of the New Yorker articles here. All right, I'm trying to produce a high quality production here. Okay, there we go. Profiles. Published in the print issue of the New Yorker with the headline, The Last Word. Justice Samuel Alito's crusade against a secular America is over. Written by Margaret Talbot. Narrated by Kirsten Potter. Some baby boomers were permanently shaped by their participation in the countercultural protests and the anti-war... So I don't get tired of hanging out to the Sydney Opera House. I don't get tired of Sydney, not yet anyway. Don't get tired of Sydney Harbour. Don't get tired of Manly. I think I've been over to Manly four times in the last week. Don't get tired of just sitting here by the dock of the bay. Don't get tired of live streaming. Don't get tired of critiquing New Yorker articles. Or activism of the 1960s and 70s. Others were shaped by their aversion to those movements. Justice Samuel Alito belongs to the latter category. For many years, he lacked the power to do much about that profound distaste. And in any case, he had a reputation for keeping his head down. When President George W. Bush nominated Alito to the Supreme Court in 2005, many journalists portrayed him as a conservative, but not an ideologue. The Times noted that legal scholars characterized his jurisprudence as cautious and respectful of precedent. Sketched portraits. Okay, so we're all cautious. We're all respectful when we have to be. Right, but when we feel powerful and confident and strong and safe, we all tend to be less cautious and less respectful. Now, you may be shocked that uh, Samuel Alito was cautious and respectful when he had to be, but when the situation changed, and conservatives now have six votes on the U.S. Supreme Court, right, Opera House, okay, the, the 40 bunker, right, this is where I'm going to bunker down if there's a nuclear holocaust and it's going to hide under the Sydney Opera House. But, uh, yeah, we're all cautious and respectful when we have to be. And uh, we all tend to be more rambunctious and off the hook and unhinged when it's safe to be that. Right? When the situation changes, we change. Ah, Bell in the house, bro. So excited to have you along for the ride. It is 6.08 p.m. Wednesday 
evening here in Some Sydney. Quiet, methodical, reasonable man. On the court, even as Alito's opinions aligned consistently with the goals of the Republican Party, in particular of social conservatives, admirers praised him as pragmatic and Burkean. According to a 2018 C-SPAN PSB poll, he was the conservative justice the fewest Americans could name. And for years, he was overshadowed by his more flamboyant late colleague Antonin Scalia by Clarence Thomas, whose notorious confirmation hearings were followed by a rivetingly long silence on the bench, even by Neil Gorsuch with his cussed libertarian streak. Richard Lazarus, a professor at Harvard Law School, who has studied the court, told me that in Alito's first years as a justice, he was known primarily as Chief Justice John Roberts' right-hand man, someone the chief could assign to write an opinion that would not be too flashy or provocative. Okay, so I, when I'm in jobs where I'm not secure, I tend to abstain from being flashy and provocative as well. Time brag. I'm ahead of you guys. I am living in the future. You're probably wondering right now, what is Wednesday evening going to be like? Is it going to be safe? Is it going to be cool? Is it going to be fun? Well, I can tell you what Wednesday evening is going to be like. I am living in your future, right? When, when uh, 1999 turned into 2000 and we were afraid of, uh, of uh, you know, Y2K, all right, Australia pretty much went first and it was awesome, right? Australia ushered in the new millennium. And it was awesome and it was safe. And so I'm here to report back to you from the future. Everything's going to be A-OK. -okay. But I'm just a vessel. All right, so come on, don't you identify that we all tend to be cautious and respectful right, when we need to be? And then when you're first uh, trying to impress a woman, and then when you have her under your thrall, right, you tend to be a little more rambunctious more off the hook. I, I don't think I'm the only one who, who changes when the situation changes. And that would keep five votes together when he couldn't trust Scalia to do it, because Scalia would swing for the fences and risk losing votes. Now, though, Alito is the embodiment of a conservative majority that is ambitious and extreme. extreme. He declined to be interviewed for this article. Oh, no. With the recent additions of Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett to the court, the conservative bloc no longer needs Roberts to get results. And Alito has taken a zealous lead in reversing the progressive gains of the 60s and early 70s, from overturning Roe v. Wade to stripping away voting rights. At a Yale Law School forum in 2014, he was asked to name a personality trait that had impeded his career. Alito responded that he'd held his tongue too often, that it probably would have been better if I said a bit more at various times. He's holding his tongue no longer. Indeed, Alito now seems to be saying whatever he wants in public, often with a snide pugnaciousness that suggests his past decorum was suppressing considerable resentment. Well, I think for, for most of us, our past decorum says considerable resentment. I hardly made any videos between 2012 and 2015. I lacked confidence. I just didn't really want to be seen. And notice those people on top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, just under the, under the, I don't know, no, I don't think I can zoom in, but uh, they're just under the flags there. You can 
you can uh, go out there on a walk, but too expensive. So I don't like to spend money. The only things I spend money on gratuitously on this trip are ice creams and smoothies. So if I'm going to walk 10 miles, then, then you know, 15 miles, then I deserve an ice cream. I deserve a smoothie. So plunk down $10 for an ice cream or a smoothie, fudge sundae, right? Just $7 American, no worries. I'll do that. But other than that, like taking the big Sydney bus, $50 for, for a day trip for a guided tour of Sydney, no, I'm not going to do it. But I'll take the ferry, right? You can take the ferry pretty much anywhere in Sydney Harbour. A round trip costs you less than $6 American. No worries, mate. Last term, Alito landed the reputation-defining assignment of writing the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which eliminated the constitutional right to abortion enshrined by Roe nearly 50 years ago. In May, a draft of his opinion was leaked, and from start to finish, it sounded cantankerous and dismissive. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, Alito declared. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. He likened Roe to Plessy v. Ferguson, the notorious decision upholding segregation, approvingly cited centuries old. So also people, as they get older, it's not uh, unusual they become more forthright, uh, less careful. They don't weigh their words as much. Uh, they start speaking out more. They usually tend to feel more confident. They tend to might be more agreeable in many ways, but uh, if it's important to them, they'll just speak out. So I don't think that uh, Samuel Alito's journey is, is that unusual. Old common law categorizing a woman who received an abortion after quickening as a murderess and used the inflammatory word personhood. When wait, 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 wait. Why is personhood so inflammatory when it is applied to the fetus? Why is that inflammatory? So here we get down to a fundamental difference between the left and the right and their understanding of the self. So for the left, the self is buffered, it is strategic, it is autonomous. And for the right, the self is porous, right? There isn't just a clinical state of fetus. The fetus is a human being in the process of becoming a human being, right? And so we're not just autonomous, right? It's not just a fetus and that's all it is. From, from a traditional perspective, you know, the fetus is not just a separate state. The fetus is the human being you know, in process to more full realization. And describing fetal life, it was hardly... Right, she... <laughs> She regards it as inflammatory to ascribe personhood to the fetus, right? From a traditional perspective, you know, or common sense perspective, we never talk about the fetus when it's going to be maintained. When we meet a pregnant woman, a friend, we don't say, how's the fetus? We say, how's the baby? You know, we recognize that this is a human being in the process of becoming a human being. Right? We don't go, how's your fetal life? your fetal life acting up today back to the new yorker sam alito's inevitable that alito would be assigned the dobbs opinion 
Joan Biskupic, a CNN analyst and the author of a biography of Chief Justice Roberts, has reported that Roberts privately lobbied fellow conservatives to save the constitutional right to abortion down to the bitter end. Roberts wanted to validate the particular restriction at issue in Dobbs, a Mississippi ban on virtually all abortions after 15 weeks, but he opposed a wholesale rejection of Roe, which, among other things, had strengthened the notion that a right to privacy was implicit in the Constitution. If Roberts had successfully enlisted, say, the occasionally more... Okay, so this right to privacy implicit in the Constitution is absolutely bizarre. It's entirely eisegesis, reading a meaning into the text. It's not exegesis, deducing a meaning from the text. Right? There's no right to privacy in, in the U.S. Constitution. There's not much of a right to privacy in, in Torah law. There's no right to privacy in Roman Catholic law or Christian law or New Testament or Church Fathers or Martin Luther or John Calvin. Like, this right to privacy is a left-wing consideration, right? Coming from a belief that the self is autonomous and buffered, and uh, therefore, you know, what the autonomous self does in private is none of the business of people around it. But everything we do affects us and affects other people. Right? What you do in private affects other people. There were millennial woes in 1999. He bitterly mentioned Ford's coverage of his failings. Big win, not likely woes, follows advice to improve. Yeah, millennial woes, like, nice bloke, right? There's no nastiness, bitterness in millennial woes. He's not someone, you know, looking to feud, uh, not looking to, generally speaking, score cheap points. But he is in a downward spiral and doesn't want to emerge from his downward spiral. So he's very good at articulating his depression and he's very good at articulating his failures and at articulating his conspiratorial worldview. And there's a tremendous audience for what he has to, to paddle, right? So he you know, tells young men, you have you know, every right to feel victimized. You know, you are victimized. It's not your fault that you're living in your parents' basement and don't have a job and your life isn't working. Like, there are all these you know, conspiracies out there that are holding you down. There's an enormous audience for that. Right? Much more of an audience for nonsense and for self-destruction than uh, there is an audience for recovery. <laughs> oh, well. Right? To... Uh, be a pundit is to feed the client's needs just like a prostitute, right? That's how you become successful as a pundit. You tell people what they want to hear. And people love to hear victimhood. And I'm not against victimhood, right? All in-group identity has a substantial quantity of victimhood. We're just talking about how intense should your victimhood be. And generally speaking, people are not served by an intense sense of victimhood. So I'm all for walking around with a sense of victimhood on a scale of say two out of ten, possibly even three. Now occasionally going up to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten in extreme circumstances. But for most people having walking around with a sense of victimhood above a two or a three is maladaptive. Right? Makes you more suspicious of our groups, more hostile to our groups. Uh, predisposes you to a conspiratorial frame of mind uh, 
uh, takes away, reduces your sense of agency. Now, some sense of victimhood, like at a two out of 10, right? That, that gives you an in-group identity. It gives you purpose and meaning in life. It bonds you to your in-group, but it's not so intense that it maladjusts you for dealing with wider society. So millennial woes effectively argues for and embodies a sense of victimhood that's operating at a seven out of 10, eight out of 10, nine out of 10, 10 out of 10, right? And that's excellent for developing in-group identity and esprit de corps and bonding with people like yourself, but it's a terrible maladjustment for dealing with a multiracial, multicultural society. Is it? If you follow that advice, it's going to make you usually a loser in life. So, yeah, I noticed many people comment on my channel, oh, you know, how do we get rid of victimhood? You don't want to get rid of victimhood. It's just a matter of the intensity. Just operating at a 1 out of 10, 2 out of 10, occasionally dialing up to 3 or 4 out of 10. There's nothing wrong with that. Like you can't have in-group identity without a sense of victimhood. But how much do you want to stress it? How intense do you want it to be? Like, do you want it to be the driving force in people's lives? No, I think that's generally maladaptive. Audience just want more vids from him. Not sure how active he is. Ford left his work a year ago, maybe two. Yeah, I haven't paid much attention to millennial woes. It's just, uh, it's just too easy. It's just like uh, picking, picking wings off a fly. So many of the people are just too easy to to pick on. I, I just try to desist. There's, there's nothing new and important there. Now let's get back to this New Yorker article on Samuel Alito's battle against a secular America. Pretty scary stuff, right? It's crusade, and it's not over, guys. This is from the New Yorker. It was hardly inevitable that Alito would be assigned the Dobbs opinion. Joan Biskupic, a CNN analyst and the author of a biography of Chief Justice Roberts, has reported that Roberts privately lobbied fellow conservatives to save the constitutional right to abortion down to the bitter end. Roberts wanted to validate the particular restriction at issue in Dobbs, a Mississippi ban on virtually all abortions after 15 weeks, but he... So, I guess Ann Coulter was right. Now, Justice John Roberts has been a real disappointment on the court. Like, he changed his, his vote to ratify Obamacare, which was a $2 trillion transfer over the course of a decade from productive Americans to less productive Americans. Ann Coulter was right. Justice John Roberts has been a great disappointment for conservatives. Luckily, we now have five authentic conservatives on the court, aside from John Roberts. ...posed a wholesale rejection of Roe, which, among other things, had strengthened the notion that a right to privacy was implicit in the Constitution. If Roberts had successfully enlisted, say, the occasionally more moderate Kavanaugh, he would have had the authority to assign the opinion, as the Chief Justice typically does when he is in the majority. 
Indeed, Roberts might well have written the opinion himself, producing a text that felt more conciliatory than Alito's, something less openly contemptuous of the justices who had crafted Roe and its sequel, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and more mindful of the fact that a majority of Americans support abortion rights. But, let... So, when left-wing courts overturned referendums passed by the majority of the population, you don't hear... You know, left-wing publications like the New Yorker or the Los Angeles Times or New York Times saying, oh, you know, it's important that the court be respectful of the majority opinion of the population. No, you crush the majority. So when the left's in power, they want to crush majority opinion. So when the majority of Californians voted for Roe v. Wade, had voted for Proposition 187 to deny benefits to illegal aliens, Right, important that that be crushed when majority of Californians voted against allowing same-sex marriage. And it's important that the court absolutely crush these bigoted, hateful, uneducated opinions. But when the right now has power on the Supreme Court, right, now, now suddenly the left wants the, the court to be respectful of the opinions of the majority of Americans. Why wasn't it important to the left that courts be respectful of the majority of opinions? when the left was in power in the court and the right was winning the popular vote. So this is article in the New Yorker. Justice told me it was quite clear coming into conference after the oral argument that Roberts' rationale was going to be much narrower than what the other five conservative justices wanted to say. Given this gulf, Roberts couldn't insist on writing the main opinion himself. Traditionally, when the chief justice isn't in the majority, or is nominally voting with it but making a substantially different argument, the most senior justice in the winning block assigns the opinion. In this case, that was Thomas, and he chose Alito. After the draft leaked, many court observers predicted that, though the opinion's substance wasn't likely to change, its tone surely would. It might at least lose a chilling reference to an insufficient domestic supply of adoptable infants, a problem that would be fixed, presumably, by forcing more Americans to carry pregnancies to term. But the final verb... Okay, how about uh, not forcing, right? It's not forcing majority of Americans. They can travel to another state. It's uh, changing incentives, right? It's incentivizing more people to carry babies to term. So if you want to adopt a white child, there basically aren't any, you know, white infants, healthy white infants to adopt in America. Right? You want to adopt a child in America, right? born in America, overwhelmingly it has to be a, a black kid. Now, overwhelmingly abortions are carried out for black women, women of, of color. Right? Those are the overwhelming number of abortions. So, uh, there almost no, you know, Jewish children available for adoption anymore. You know, it used to be fairly common. Like if uh, a Jewish couple wanted to adopt a Jewish infant, like it could be arranged. But uh, since Roe v. Wade, nope, you can't find them in America. Back to this New Yorker article. Version was virtually unchanged, save for the addition of a sharp rebuke to the dissent. An investigation into the leak is supposedly ongoing. 
According to Biscupic, clerks were asked to sign affidavits and provide cell phone records. We saw an emboldened Alito this term, Lazarus said. Unlike when he first joined the court, he no longer needs to curry favor from the chief. Robert's view of Dobbs was characteristic. He has long favored narrowly tailored... And Spencer's big time. He presses ahead with his schemes, says uh, Otbell. And schemes and scams. No, I don't think it's a scam. I, I think actually, because Richard Spencer's gone much smaller time, he's be become more humble. He's literally become sober, right? He's largely quit drinking. He has, you know, stopped talking about building the ethno state and, you know, absurd plans. So I think it's the very opposite of what you're saying, Art Bell. He has become more sober. His plans are much smaller. He's living much more in reality. And a sober Spencer, a much more thoughtful Spencer, you know, much less deluded Spencer. Uh, it's a humbler Spencer. He's been humbled by life. So I, I don't see any scams in what Richard Spencer's doing. He does a substack for $9 a month. There's a ton of content on there. He produces courses on Plato and on Nietzsche. Uh, not a scam. Right? I think these are authentic courses. You get what you pay for. So my perspective is very opposite of yours there, Art Bell. I think uh, Richard is doing you know, honest, realistic, you know, value-for-money courses because this is a humbled and sober Richard Spencer. The Richard Spencer we saw in 2015, 2016, 2017. There's a intoxicated Richard Spencer uh, very well on under the influence of illegal drugs, but in virtually every live stream he was intoxicated. Uh, now, getting a newly sober Spencer who will go several days apparently without taking a drink. And this is a better, you know, more pro-social, more humble, more down-to-earth uh, Richard Spencer. Alert opinions that foster consensus among the justices and perhaps avert political chaos. He once observed, if it's not necessary to decide more to dispose of a case. Okay, so we, we all tend to try to craft compromises when that's in our best interest. But we don't need to craft compromises, right? We don't go through that arduous work. Crafting compromises is a lot of work. Then you just want to say what you believe. Right? When we get to a place of safety and strength, and we feel like we can say what we believe, we say what we believe. Like Richard Spencer's been humbled, right? He's no longer saying nearly as much about what he believes. He is circumcising and circumscribing what he says to that which is socially acceptable, right? Because he's gone in the opposite trajectory of Samuel Alito. And Samuel Alito crafted painful compromises when he had to. Now he doesn't have to. Now he can be full-throated in what he believes. Richard Spencer's had to go in the opposite direction. He's had to dial back what he believes and constrain himself to what's socially acceptable. Case, in my view, it is necessary to decide more. Thomas and Alito have adopted a more combative approach, one that finds no great value in privileging precedent, especially... Paywall is going well, he's growing an empire. I'm not sure he's growing an empire, but he provides a ton of compelling content. Right? You get bang for your buck, $9 a month for a sub stack, and... Uh, probably get like 
15 hours a week, uh, 15 hours a month of original content. And if this is stuff you're interested in, yeah, it's it's bang for your, bang for your buck. So first he was very concerned he'd be thrown off of Substack, but Richard's a very intelligent man. He's learning to play within the rules of the game. He's kept his place on Twitter and he's maintaining his Substack and he's not gratuitously making enemies. And it's interesting, Michael Edison Hayden, right, the Antifa activist, also serves as Southern Poverty Law Center journalist, says that he knows things that the rest of us don't and that uh, Richard has repented for his sins and that, uh, you know, Richard's ab abandoned the whole, you know, racial game. So Michael Edison Hayden made some interesting tweets saying that uh, people should lay off Richard Spencer. So why should uh, Michael Edison Hayden, an Antifa activist, right? It's a left-wing crusader, like this Southern Poverty Law Center hitman. Why is Thomas Edison Hayden, you know, this gay guy from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, why, why is he going to bear for Richard Spencer? And that's curious. These are open, open tweets that Michael Edison Hayden made about uh, a month ago, saying, lay off Richard Spencer. He says, Michael Edison Hayden says, you know, I know things that you don't know. So stop criticizing Richard Spencer. Stop giving Richard Spencer a hard time. So why is Antifa going to bat for Richard Spencer? Why is the Southern Poverty Law Center going to bat for Richard Spencer? Why is there activist Michael Edison Hayden saying he knows things that the rest of us don't and that uh, Richard Spencer should not be you know, harassed anymore? Like, what things does Michael Edison Hayden know that the rest of us don't? Curious minds want to know these things. If the precedent emanates from the 60s, when Chief Justice Earl Warren was pushing the court leftward, some justices, attentive to the immediate human risks of revoking the right to abortion, might have at least put on a show of sober humility. Now, well, there are risks in many different directions. It's not like there are only risks if you overturn Roe v. Wade. If you don't overturn Roe v. Wade, right, you're consenting to the killing of tens of thousands of babies and is that not a risk too how how is the risk here only operating in one direction no matter how convinced they were that they were correct and no matter how cognizant they were of having had the last word they might in public appearances have tried not to antagonize the many americans look when tens of thousands of lives are at stake uh why would you pussyfoot around? Why would you not issue a clarion call for life? Tens of thousands of lives are at stake. Why would you be you know, so sensitive and cautious right, when thousands and thousands of lives are at stake? No comprendence. who think differently. At a minimum, they might have resisted making a gloating joke. In July, Alito, who was 72, delivered a speech at the Palazzo Colonna in Rome for a gathering hosted by the University of Notre Dame Law School's Religious Liberty Initiative, a conservative group that has filed amicus briefs before the court. Faculty affiliated with the group also filed briefs in Dobbs. Legal analysts at Slate noted that the spectacle of a justice chumming it up with the same conservative lawyers who were involved in cases before the court creates the unseemly impression of judicial indifference toward basic judicial ethics rules. 
Alito had donned stylish, horn-rimmed glasses that he doesn't usually wear in public, and he had a new, graying beard. Though the speech focused... Wait, 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 wait. Linda Greenhouse, NPR correspondent, right, had the journalistic beat of covering the U.S. Supreme Court, was very good friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So when the left chums it up, when left-wing justices chum it up with journalists, with, you know, fellow left-wing elites, that's, that's not a problem. It's only a problem when a right-wing justice, you know, chums it up with some uh, traditional group, right? Why isn't uh, Linda Greenhouse's long friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg while she's covering the U.S. Supreme Court for NPR? Why isn't that a problem? Okay, we've got an issue here. So we got this boat you know, going right in front of a ferry. Okay, let's see if we... We're gonna have a collision here. That's, that's Meshuggah. Absolutely crazy. Like, what on earth is that little boat thinking? That's crazy. He just cut right in front of a ferry. And here we got the New South Wales police. They're going to give him a ticket. No, they don't appear to be giving him a ticket. This little dinky speedboat, you know, cutting in front of a massive unrushing ferry. But uh, New South Wales police not interested in giving this guy a ticket. I mean, that was pretty reckless. Come on, guys. Just on one of his favorite topics, the supposed vulnerability of religious freedom in increasingly secular societies. Wait, the supposed vulnerability of religious freedom in secular societies. Of course religious freedom is being impinged when you expand competing rights and give them precedence over religious freedom. Of course religious freedom is being reduced when uh, you diminish freedom of association to ever increase uh, gay rights, transcend transsexual rights, you know, rights of the individual to be who he wants to be, say what he wants to say, sing what he wants to sing, right? You're reducing the rights of people to freely associate, to you know, build their own communities. You can only have a safe space like uh, Sydney Harbour, Sydney Opera House, by excluding people, right? When you reduce the ability of religious communities to exclude people, to not employ people, to not rent to people, that you are reducing religious rights. Religion isn't just something that takes place in a church, a synagogue. Right? The, the primary basis for Judaism, for example, is not the synagogue, it's the home. So you reduce the rights of religious people and who they can live with, live around, associate with, employ, you know, how they, they can practice in the public square. Yeah, you're reducing religious rights. So she's talking about you know, supposed reduction in religious liberty. He couldn't resist crowing about Dobbs. I had the honor this term of writing, I think, the only Supreme Court decision in the history of that institution that has been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders, Alito said. One of these was former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but he paid the price. Johnson resigned earlier this summer. The audience laughed heartily. 
But others are still in office, Alito continued, suppressing a smile. President Macron and Prime Minister Trudeau, I believe, are two. The laughter grew fainter, but Alito was on a roll. It was time for a dad joke about Voldemort. What really wounded me was when the Duke of Sussex addressed the United Nations and seemed to compare the decision whose name may not be spoken with the Russian attack on Ukraine. The Duke of Sussex, more commonly known as Prince Harry, had said, This has been a painful year in a painful decade, citing the pandemic, climate change, the war in Ukraine, the spread of disinformation, and the... Yeah, the reduction in uh, civil liberties. Well, reduction of uh, one liberty, such as the right to an abortion, that expands liberty to tens of thousands of other people. You know, they have the, the right to live. And so it's not like you can ever reduce rights for one group and not expand them for another, or expand them for one group and not uh, reduce them for another. And there's not like an infinite quantity of uh, rights in the world where uh, no one ever suffers when you know one group gets gets the advantage, gets an expansion, gets a sacred status. back of constitutional rights here in the United States. Alito's smile reappeared. On the bench, he's often serious, even scowling, especially when his liberal colleagues are speaking. But in Rome... All right, well, when I'm under pressure, I'm, you know, I'm often serious. And when I'm doing hard work, sometimes I'm scowling. And when I'm dealing with things that I don't like, I get unpleasant looks on my face. Yeah. Guess what? When we're happy, when we're comfortable, when we're with like-minded people, you know, we're, we're much more likely to be positive. And uh, when we're dealing with nasty stuff that we don't like, we're dealing with difficult things. Yeah, our face looks different. at his critics for the amusement of a like-minded audience. He was living his best life. Alito's childhood and adolescence coincided with a social transformation for which the Warren court provided the legal underpinnings. Warren, a Republican and an Eisenhower nominee, who turned out to be far more liberal than those affiliations implied, presided over the court from 1953 to was born in 1950 in Trenton, New Jersey, in a mostly Italian-American enclave. Okay, let me uh, just do a little fast-forwarding here. Let's get at least to when he gets to uh, law school. Then in 1968, the school didn't have a particularly rebellious student body. During the 1969 moratorium to end the war in Vietnam, the school's Students for a Democratic Society contingent carried signs that said, even Princeton. Nevertheless, the university saw its share of sit-ins and marches during Alito's years there, and his already deeply held political allegiances put him at odds with the left-wing youth culture surrounding him. His cultural tastes made him an outlier, too. 
Alito once recalled spending New Year's Eve 1967 in front of the TV at home watching a band that his parents liked, Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians. One of Alito's college roommates, David Grace, told me, Sam was offended by the more extreme instances of anti-war protest. Alito has said that he could understand opposition to the war, but felt it was very wrong to allow discontent with government leaders to be expressed as antipathy to the United States. In Alito's soft... So they portray Sam Alito as some square that he, he would watch a band on TV that his parents liked. You know, God forbid that you carry on any cultural practices, traditional practices, religious practices, you know, that your parents liked. God forbid. More year, students staged an anti-war strike after President Richard Nixon ordered the invasion of Cambodia. 80% of the student body took part. The administration announced that students could waive their exams. By several accounts, Alito was frustrated that the strikes might disrupt his education. Oh, wow. So, who wouldn't be frustrated if the uh, administration says, oh, you can just waive your exams, and we're just going to uh, give up on uh, providing you an education. Uh, you kids know better. I think you're our conscience. You know, go ahead with your protests against the war. You know, we'll just cave over. We'll just abandon our responsibilities to provide you with an education. Uh, sounds like uh, Sam Alito, in some respects, was uh, quite the you know, quite the mature young man. This is the New Yorker article: Sam Alito's crusade against the secular America. He wasn't alone. His classmate, George Carpinello, was liberal and opposed the war, but like Alito, he came from a more humble background than many Princetonians. Carpinello, who was now a litigator in Albany, said, We felt so lucky to be there, and the strike seemed to us to attack what was, in our mind, such a great institution. I suspect Sam is still carrying some of that. As conservative as Alito was, he was not a campus firebrand. A Princeton classmate who has kept in touch with him told me, Firebrand would be the last way you would have described Sam. More like quiet, and you barely knew he was there. Alito joined the Princeton debate team, however, as did Grace. Okay, that's why these notions of people that just have an inherent personality, that some people are quiet, others are extroverted, that some people are careful, other people are careless, some people really into new experiences, other people are very closed off, some people are highly conscientious, other people, you know, highly neurotic, right? This is all situation dependent. You know, a lot of people are quiet and cautious, They're just quiet and cautious in some situations. And the situation's frequently the boss. It's not the, the individual's personality. So Sam Alita is a classic example, quiet and cautious in some situations when he feels confident and safe and powerful, his personality changes, just as all of our personalities change. When we're under fire, when we're under pressure, when we're struggling to form you know, some sort of compromise, right, we're going to be careful and even quiet. When we feel safe and strong and comfortable and confident, right, we become much more outgoing.
So back to uh, New Yorker article here. I hope. Come on, man. I'm trying to run a high high quality production. I don't hear the article. What the heck? drove the team's old Chevrolet to various tournaments, sometimes stopping to visit Alito's sister Rosemary at Smith College, or to have dinner in Hamilton Township. So he was more into going to debate tournaments than uh, listening to rock and roll and smoking dope and participating in free love. Alito's parents. Alito and Grace enjoyed themselves, but not exactly in the countercultural spirit of the era. After a debate in Ontario, a Canadian customs agent reportedly stopped the team and found bottles of port in the trunk. Princeton went co-ed in Alito's sophomore year. Alice Kalikia, who became a friend of his, remembered hanging out with him around a microwave oven that had just been installed on campus, warming up chocolate chip cookies while talking about Italy and the philosopher John Rawls. Kalikian, who dated one of Alito's friends, noted that Alito was always very respectful of me, adding, a lot of male classmates were not. Still, feminism was in the air. Young women were talking about new possibilities for living independent and fulfilling lives, about ways they might explore sexuality without committing to marriage and family right off, about their determination to create a less misogynistic society. In 1973, the year after Alito graduated, the Supreme Court issued its Roe decision. Kalikian, now a history professor at Brandeis University, told me, Sam was Trenton Italian and I was Chicago Armenian. That felt to her like some sort of commonality, but they had different attitudes toward the tight-knit, convention-bound immigrant communities from which they'd emerged. She felt that she was breaking away from hers. He remained tethered to his. Alito later told an interviewer for the National... Okay, so belonging to a community always comes with a price. Right? Just doing your own thing without regard to how that might affect other people in your group. And that's going to limit your ability to live in community. So some people just have an allergy to living in community because it, it's a challenge. It's difficult. Right? You just can't do your own thing and uh, not pay a price. Living in community requires self-discipline, self-abnegation, self-sacrifice. Now, the emotional energy and the strength, the, the benefits, uh, the connection, right, I think are all worth it. But uh, some people just put a much higher value on living in community than, than others. You know, I can't imagine life without living in community. Italian-American foundation that he couldn't relate to his peers' view that their elders had become affluent by taking advantage of other people. They had bad values. They were very materialistic. Alito went on. I thought that whole view of my parents, of the generation to which my parents belonged, was false. Perhaps it was true of some people in that generation, but certainly it wasn't true of the people that I knew. At his Supreme Court confirmation hearings, he described his New Jersey suburb as a stronghold of traditional values that felt safe. At Princeton, he said, he saw some very privileged people behaving irresponsibly. And I couldn't help making a contrast between some of the worst of what I saw on the campus and the good sense and the decency of some of the people back in my own community. Alito's grandfather came to America from Italy in 1913. An unskilled laborer for the Pennsylvania Railroad, he was employed irregularly during the Depression. Okay, so if you have 
more traditional sense of self, you believe that we're porous and therefore we're affected by our parents, by our grandparents, by our nieces, by our neighbors, right? That, that uh, you can't understand the self outside of its community, outside of its tribe. So the liberal modern conception of the self is that we're autonomous, strategic, buffered individuals that can you know, make our own way in life by using our reason and that we're born with certain inalienable rights. That's the liberal conception of the self. The traditional conception of the self is that we're born into a family and a tribe and a community and a nation and this sense of identity, this sense of connection, this sense of family and extended family is the most important thing about us. That uh, we're Jewish or Christian or Armenian, that uh, you know, Seventh-day Adventist, that uh, we're born in a particular community and whatever rights we're afforded, right, those rights come from the community, the tribe, the nation, and that they're going to vary depending on the situation depending on, on time and place. And that, you know, our, our rights are less important than our membership in a particular family, tribe, community, nation. His wife and infant son, Samuel, soon joined him in Trenton. Alito's father grew up poor, but he excelled in school and became a teacher who set exacting academic standards for his own two children. At night, Alito told the interviewer for the National Italian American Foundation, his father sat with him and his sister Rosemary at the kitchen table, going over every single word of their school papers. Alito went on to start out. I remember when I was growing up, uh, other kids would you know, have parents who would check their homework. You know, my parents never checked my homework. Right? They. That you had nothing to do with my homework. So, did, did your parents work with you on your homework? Did they check off your homework every night? No, my parents were much more detached. Like my brother, I think when he was like 14 or 15, he would just hitchhike to Bathurst, which is like two hours' drive away, to watch races all day and then come home at night, and, you know, with, with nary a, a question or concern from my parents. From about age five, I would wander off into the bush all day. They're chopping down trees with a tomahawk. Oh, they, they checked your homework, bro? Yeah, my parents never did that. Like, I would just wander off all day, you know, from about age five into the bush. You know, with poisonous snakes around, chopping down trees, blazing trails. Come home at lunch, you know, get a bit of tucker in me. Then, you know, head back out into the brush and the bush. It was very painful. But I think that's how you have to learn writing. Rosemary now practices employment law in New Jersey. Their mother, Rose Fredusco Alito, whom Alito has called a very intelligent, very determined, very strong-willed person, was an elementary school teacher and a principal. In 2006, she told the Washington Post that, When the first baby came, I said, Sam, our children are going to be the smartest children in Hamilton Township. Alito had big plans for himself, too. His senior year yearbook entry at Princeton shows a young man with neatly trimmed hair and a serious gaze behind bulky eyeglasses. The entry reads, Sam intends to go to law school and eventually to warm a seat on the Supreme Court. Years later, when he sat on the court, he described the line as a joke. If it was, it was a subtle one. 
While at Princeton, Alito was enrolled in ROTC, and he was upset when the Board of Trustees voted in 1970 to terminate the program over the course of the next two years. At his court confirmation hearings, he said the prevailing attitude on campus had been that Princeton would somehow be sullied if people in uniform were walking around. Yeah, that is kind of absurd, right? So all these elite premier universities that wanted nothing to do with the ROTC, which is you know, a military program, right? They want nothing to do with, with the military, which secures them, keeps them safe, protects them. And, uh, the, the, you know, Princeton somehow would be sullied. Yeah, I, I think I share Samuel Alito's attitudes to how fatuous that is. The program was reinstated as an extracurricular activity in 1972, but the situation continued to irk Alito. During his confirmation hearings, Democratic senators, Joe Biden among them, pressed him to answer why, on his 1985 application for the Office of Legal Counsel job, he had listed membership in an organization called the Concerned Alumni of Princeton, CAP. The group was made up of disgruntled former Princetonians who criticized various changes on campus, including co-education and the university's efforts to recruit minorities and public school graduates. Princeton, the group's founder declared, should consist of a body of men relatively homogenous in interests and backgrounds. Right, so the more you have in common with people, right, the better you're going to get along, you know, the less crime you're going to have, the more social cohesion, the more social trust, you know, everything's going to work more smoothly, you're going to need you know, less litigation, you know, fewer laws, less regulation. Right, once once you have a, a strong corporate identity, you don't have to litigate every little thing. You don't have to negotiate every little thing. You know, it's wonderful when you can be with you know, like-minded people, people like yourself, like a normal person just feels less tension. They feel more at ease in the world and things work better. So there are advantages to diversity as well. But it comes with tremendous prices. You get more litigation, more regulation, people feel less safe that you have to negotiate more little things so it's not like one approach is just inherently better than the other so when, when Princeton became co-ed right, there was a loss of social trust social cohesion uh, loss of, of bonding between people uh, the campus became more, more fragmented Right, when women enter the picture, you know, men feel less at ease. They start having to regulate their own speech and behavior much more. So it's not like, oh, we're just going to you know, increase rights for one group, but uh, that's not going to come at a price to anyone else. Of course it comes at a price. If men dramatically change their speech and behavior, when women enter the picture, they are less comfortable. You know, with America and extreme diversity, Everybody feels at ease mixing with people completely unlike themselves. Senator Patrick Leahy told Alito he was puzzled that someone with his background would want to join such an ultra-WASP club. Alito said that he didn't recall joining the group, but had likely been prompted by his objection to the downgrading of the ROTC program, which CAP also cared about, though not as much as it cared about preserving Princeton for elite white males. Another classmate of Alito's, the future Fox News... So, often when you form coalitions, right, when there's an issue that's of, of pressing you know, importance to you, 
you make alliances with, with people who you otherwise would not feel that much in common with. So it's not terribly surpri surprising that uh, Samuel Alvita would, would do that. Yeah, that's the Holland America. 